0: So, yeah, so I I think that that's really the point is, you know, if someone's trying to open their heart to the gospel, I mean, if someone came to me and said, you know, Father Michael, I really struggle with the bodily resurrection or, or, or whatever. But I'm really trying to be open to it. They can receive but if someone comes and says, I think that's a fairy tale. I think it's stupid. I you know, I'm above the scriptures and the church and everyone else and all the great minds of the church has ever known and may I receive communion. <laughs> no, no, you're not you're not going to receive communion. So it's really a madness of uh, madness. <laughs> that's really a madness. That's true. It's really a matter of where the heart is, where the heart is. And if you're called to repentance by the priest, and you refuse to repent, and you say, well, I, I just don't see it that way, then that, that becomes an issue. I, I said this last Sunday. It happened to me since then. Um, I was out uh, at uh, uh, Anglican 1000 in Chicago this past week. I'm so happy my traveling is over. week and a half of it. Anyway... Um, and I had a meeting with our future uh, diocesan bishop, Bishop Charlie, great man. Um, and I said, Bishop, I have a question for you. I think I know what your answer is going to be, and I'm not going to like it. <laughs> um, but I will, I will do what you say, but I ask that you take what I'm about to say into consideration. So he said, oh, yes, Michael. And so I said, you'll find that Anglo-Catholics, now, I'm going to offend a whole bunch of people here, but I did say this jokingly to him. you'll find that Anglo-Catholics are obedient, because we don't have to like what our bishops say. As long as it's godly and biblical and patristic, we have to obey. I said, you'll find that, that evangelicals and charismatics will also obey you, unless they disagree with you, then they'll get a word from the Lord that says it's okay for them to go against you. So I said, I'll be obedient to you. Um and uh so and i asked him the the question i told him my reasons why he said well um you're right i'm going to go with the other and this is why and he told me and i said you know um i think that's going to cause me problems <laughs> i think it will be hard for me and and others but I also understand why you're asking it, and it also makes sense why you're asking it. And uh, but even if it didn't, it's not ungodly or unbiblical, and so uh, consider it done. You know, and and so it's a mat- It's a matter of where the heart is, where where the heart is, and um, so uh, so anyway. So that that's an example. So the last hour, uh, 10 minutes, has been about the fact that the sacramental life of the church is grounded in the incarnation. We are not just a spiritual church. Uh, we, we are an incarnational religion. And it's also grounded in the idea of creation, that uh, God is the creator and that he doesn't work in opposition to the created order, but through the created order and I tried to show um, things from both the Old and New Testament where that has been the case, okay? And the difference between subjective and objective when it comes to sacraments. So uh, we're now going to uh, to move on to the next thing, and that is that, as I said, in the patristic mind and in the Orthodox Church, they're reluctant to get pinned down to the number seven. Um They will, if you push them, (laughs) the Orthodox, but they're reluctant because life itself is sacramental because our life is in the um, Christ, in Christ. Thank you, (laughs) whoever said that. Um, uh, um, In Rome, uh, it's a little bit more, uh, as shocking as this, a little bit more definitive, uh, and that is There are seven, okay? There are sacramentals, which can convey grace, but they're not the seven sacraments. In Anglicanism, there's the full sacramental system of all seven, but there's a clear distinction made between baptism and Holy Eucharist and the others, okay? So even within greater Catholicism, in Orthodoxy, Yes, there's seven, but they're reluctant to be pinned down to seven. In the patristic church, um, there were some that had greater number of sacraments and some that had lesser, but really it's that life itself is sacramental, grounded in the incarnation and the creation. In Rome, uh, there are seven, uh, and in Anglicanism, there are seven, but there's a clear distinction made between the first two. So... Some Anglicans will say there are two sacraments and five sacramental rites. Some will say there are two sacraments of the gospel and five other commonly called sacraments. Some will say there are two dominical sacraments, that is, sacraments clearly commanded by the Lord, and five other sacraments. Some will say um, uh, there are two sacraments necessary for salvation and five other sacraments. Some will say there are two great sacraments and five lesser sacraments. Okay. Um, I, I tend on some days... To lean towards, there are seven sacraments. But in many days, I I do lean towards the other. I think you do have to make a distinction. Um, Jesus is clear. Now, remember, we're limited to the sacraments. God isn't, right? Um, But Jesus is clear. Now, let's not get into the island questions. What if a person's on an island and never heard, you you know, or was hit by a bus on his way to be baptized, or, you know. Let's leave those things to God, okay? Um, And uh, let's look at the norms. Jesus says that for someone to be saved, they must be baptized. He also says that they must partake of his body and blood. Not everyone has to be married to be saved. Do you have to be ordained to be saved? Of course not. No. Right, of course. He thinks so. He, he thinks no now. Next week he'll be like, well, of course. Yeah, yeah, you know. well, only the ordained are saved. Right. The others will live in the earthly paradise. But we're part of the 144,000. Uh, right. Um, uh, you know, so that there are two sacraments that are generally necessary for salvation and that's perfectly biblical and patristic, okay? Um, but that the other, the other five are not necessary for salvation, but are, are particular points in many people's lives, okay? So today we're going to look at the other five, whether, uh, you know, so any question about, we do have a full sacramental system in Anglicanism, Um, in that all are seen as sacramental. But the more Anglo-Catholic you tend to be, the more you tend to talk about the seven sacraments. The more evangelical you tend to be, the more you tend to talk about the two sacraments. Um, But it's a full sacramental system. And it's really hard from Scripture to say that, well, seven, period. And it's pretty hard from the patristic church to say seven period because some fathers had more than seven and some had less than seven, okay? Um, But we certainly have the full sacramental system. I tend to talk about the two great sacraments and the five other sacraments, okay? It
1: would seem to me that if the number of sacraments was such a big issue in the patristic church, it would have been settled by the ecumenical councils. The fact that Uh, you didn't do it implies that it
0: wasn't such a big problem. It's such a big problem. I would say that it would be a problem if you denied the grace bestowed in any of the seven. But aside from that, I mean, some of the fathers said that a person who takes monastic vows, that that's a sacrament. Some of the fathers argued for, get this, foot washing as a, a sacrament. Okay. Um, by the way, this might be obvious to everyone in the room, but I always thought I had the, my whole sermon down on the foot washing. And someone said something to me at this last conference that I was like, Ugh, duh, that's so obvious, and I never thought about it. But the foot is the part that is in contact with the world the most. And if you think of the world symbolically as that which is not of God, right? Fallen, broken, out of right relationship with God, uh, resulting, raising its head to the, for the flesh and, you know, the world leads you to sin and so forth, that there's a certain symbolism of why, Je- what Jesus meant by if you wash your feet, you are clean, all of you, because... Peter's like, well, wash all of me then. At first, he's like, Go, get away from me. And then and Jesus is like, I don't wash your feet. You have no part in me. Well, then wash all of me. He goes, eh, just your feet, right? And so, that's a paraphrase, by the way. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, and someone just pointed that out. Well, you know, and I was like, well, maybe that's obvious to everyone, but I never put that together. And uh, um, But you, you will hear it this year. Because... <laughs> um, that, I think that's a really cool point. The, you know, the feet, in, in a sense, are what is, has the most direct contact with the world. And, and also, in Genesis, what is the ground? It is... What? Well, no, what is the ground? It is... Well, it represents death, death, going back to dust, but it is cursed. The ground is cursed. The ground is cursed and so uh, I thought that was pretty cool that did it was that obvious to everyone else no oh good I don't feel as dumb that's good (laughs) Um, confirmation in the in the very early church the rite of initiation was threefold It, it and it really is kind of in a sense like the doctrine of the Trinity the initiation rite was considered one and yet each part was distinct But you couldn't separate them to the point where you lost the oneness of the initiation into the church. Nor should you confuse them to the point where you lost the distinction of them as well. So it's similar to our doctrine of the Trinity. You have one God who is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You do not want to separate the persons to the point where you lose the oneness of God nor do you want to confuse the persons to the point where you lose the distinction of the persons. Is everyone with me on that? Okay. So it was in the early church with the rite of initiation into the church. It was considered one unfolding rite. Another example, by the way, would be the sacred triduum. Uh, it's considered one liturgy with three distinct parts, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, the Easter Vigil. Okay. Okay. But it's considered one liturgy, which is why at the end of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, there's no blessing given or dismissal, because the service continues. And yet each part is distinct. So it was in the early church that one came into Christ in that objective, marked way, sacramentally, an assured way, through the threefold rite of initiation. The threefold rite of initiation was baptism, chrismation, which is later called confirmation in the West, and Holy Communion. Okay. Um, Holy baptism was seen as marriage, spiritual marriage with Christ. When you were baptized, You became a member of the church, which is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride, Christ is the groom. No individual was the bride of Christ, but the entire church was his bride, called into relationship with the groom. You also became an heir of the kingdom, so everything that was Christ's by nature became yours by grace. Um, and you were adopted, becoming one. You know, like uh, when Christine and I got married, you know, my mother gave the big speech that, you know, now that you're married to my son, you are like a daughter to me, right? Um, uh, And um, the idea is we are adopted as the bride. We are adopted uh, because we're married in that sense to Christ, who is the groom, we are also the children of the Father, and all that is his becomes ours. Okay? Then you would be immediately anointed. Now, if a bishop or an apostle was present, they'd lay hands, and they might anoint you, but they'd lay hands upon you. Or if it was a priest, and the bishop or apostle was not there, then they would anoint you with oil that had been consecrated by the bishop. And this is called chrism. C-H-R-I-S-M. And you would be chrismated. You received chrismation. You're anointed with a chrism. Chrism has balsam in it to distinguish it from the other oils for anointing. Uh, We have some in the back there. Um, And it's consecrated by the bishop. And it is grounded in the Old Testament where people would be kings, prophets, and uh, priests. Would be anointed with oil that they might receive the spirit of God, and we see this carried out in the New Testament as well and so in baptism, you would be united to Christ, then you would be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now that word seal it 's very important; it doesn 't mean oh 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 okay it doesn 't mean that kind of seal. But nor does it mean like a Ziploc freezer bag either, okay, completely. Like some people will say, well, we believe in eternal security, and if you can lose your salvation through apostasy, then that's not much of a seal, is it? it it's actually more along the lines, not of a seal, but of a seal. You are marked, okay, marked as Christ's own forever through the Spirit. You have the seal of the living God upon you. You are sealed. As one would do, uh, a bishop in the ancient church, or a magistrate, or a king, would put his seal on something, then it it received what by his seal? Authority. Authority, legitimacy, right, okay? So you would be baptized into Christ and immediately through the laying on of hands of an apostle or bishop or through the anointing with chrism by a priest that was consecrated by a bishop, you would receive the seal of the Spirit. Then that new life, by water in the Spirit, okay, would then be nourished, realized, lived out strengthened through receiving the sacrament. And in one sense, and I'm not trying to be funny, if baptism is spiritual marriage with Christ, you become part of the bride, right? when people are spiritually joined in holy matrimony, how is that spiritual union realized, lived out, nurtured, nourished, strengthened, expressed? Through sexual uh, stuff. stuff, thank you. That's the Greek word? Yes. Stuff through sexual, exp- right, through intercourse, right? So it is that one is spiritually united with Christ in baptism and is, in, in, in a sense, Holy Eucharist, I'm not trying to be funny, is, is like sex, where that spiritual union is, in a tangible way, Expressed, realized, nurtured, nourished, um, uh, etc., etc. Okay, that new life is strengthened. In fact, Paul, as you know, because I've did this in my teaching, uses the word in First Corinthians chapter ten: "The bread that we break is it not a koinonia with the body of Christ? The cup which we bless is it not a koinonia with the blood of Christ?" That word koinonia in the Greek is the same root as when a man and a woman, hopefully husband and wife, come together in sexual union, so that they are no longer two, but are one. Okay? Are no longer two, but are one. So, in a sense, when we um, encounter Christ in the Eucharist, um, we are joined intimately with him, so that we are no longer two, but one. With Christ our groom. Okay? Very powerful analogy for Holy Eucharist if you think about it. All right. So that was the threefold rite of initiation. You were baptized into Christ, you were sealed with the Spirit, and this new birth by water and the Spirit was lived out. Was lived out. Okay, expressed, nourished, strengthened in Holy Communion. This is how it was done in the early church. What happened as an accident of history, however, is that the sealing with the Holy Spirit, to be sealed with the Spirit, got separated from baptism as an accident of history. What happened was the East said, well, look, if an apostle, or after the death of the apostles, a bishop is present, he can immediately lay hands on the person being baptized. But if he's not present we will use, following the precedent in the Old Testament, and it's still found in the New Testament, of oil being used as a dispenser of the Spirit, oil consecrated by the bishop, and the priest in the bishop's name will anoint that person or child okay, into Christ through the Spirit. In the West, they said, well, no, we want the bishop to hold on to this. So we're going to wait for when the bishop gets there. So someone is baptized, then the bishop will come and will lay hands on them to receive the Spirit. Okay. Well, what happened over time is that at first that may have been a day or two, and then a week or two, and as the church grew and grew, the bishop was coming around every year, and then what happened was that confirmation, chrismation, got separated as an accident of history from baptism until eventually it settled down as a rite of passage being associated with puberty. i to think Freud is correct. Everything comes back to that. It right? gets, uh, um, gets associated with puberty. So then you have a real theological problem, don't you? Number one, if you're following the ancient rite, that one is baptized and then sealed with the Spirit and then receives Holy Communion, well, what happens when this being sealed with the Holy Spirit is separated from baptism by about 12 years? Then when should Holy Communion take place? After they're confirmed. So you're baptized typically as a baby, you're confirmed when you're around 12, and then you receive Holy Communion, right? Well, then the theology came out, particularly in Rome. Well, yeah, but if baptism is spiritual birth, uh, if a child is born, they need to be what? Nourished, fed. So they came up with a compromise where you had baptism, the sealing with the Spirit, and then communion. They said, let's take communion and put it in between here as a compromise. So you're baptized, then around seven or eight, you receive communion, and then you get confirmed. Okay? Well, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they simply maintain the ancient threefold pattern of Christian initiation. Whether a person is an adult coming to Christ or is a child who's covered through the covenant coming to Christ. You are baptized into Christ. You are immediately sealed with the Spirit. If the bishop is present through the laying on of hands in chrismation, or if the priest is only there, then through chrismation, and you're immediately given Holy Communion. Okay. In Rome, they've settled down on this pattern. You're baptized, let's say as a baby, then you receive Holy Communion around 7 or 8 years old, and then you're confirmed when you're about 12, 13, or 14. The problem is not only as an accident of history has confirmation now been separated from baptism. Remember, in the Godhead, you don't want to distinguish the persons of the Godhead to the point where you lose the unity of of the Godhead, right? That's what's happened in this. this. That confirmation has gotten so separated from baptism that you've lost the unity of the initiation right into Christ. But not only has it been separated, But it's actually the order has been. You know, like if someone says, you know, there's three cones under which one is the ball, right? This is what's happened in Roman Catholicism. So now it goes baptism confirmation. No, communion confirmation. Okay? Um, And that becomes problematic. The next question before I get into Anglicanism, where are we on this? The next question is, well, there's two questions. One is, well, if confirmation or chrismation, the sealing with the Spirit, is in a sense distinct, but yet part of the same initiation rite of baptism, is one fully initiated when they are confirmed? Or are they fully in Christ when they're baptized? Well, if you say, well, they're fully in Christ when they're baptized, then you've just robbed chrismation confirmation from any Sacramental grace—it really becomes uh, a symbol problematic, right? Okay, so th- that becomes one problem. Is if baptism is everything, right? Then what is confirmation, right? So that's a theological problem that I don't think we were ever meant to experience. I think that confirmation was meant to be part of that initiation, rite. But when you, sep- when you do what you're not supposed to do, you get yourself in what? Problems, theologically, right? right? If you marry two wives, you have a theological problem, right? But then the other thing that becomes a problem is, okay, well, what about if we do return confirmation to where I would say it belongs, to the threefold initiation right, one rite uh, but threefold, what about the fact that if even if people are baptized as they should, like children of believing parents who are raised in the covenanted community to never know a time when they weren't fully in Christ, so they grow more and more in, into it. Even if that's the case, there's a longing in the human soul for saying, yeah, you know, I've I, I was brought up in it. I realize what I've been given, but you know what? I, I want that moment where I say in a conscious way that I can remember, yes, I agree, I want to receive this. Okay, so what do you do? Do you create a new sacrament? Do you, you know, what do you, what do, you do? So that becomes another problem. The, in Anglicanism, it's a very schizophrenic. You have some people like me who prefer and followed with my own children the patristic way. I know that's shocking that I did that, okay? But both of my children were baptized, chrismated with oils consecrated by the bishop, and then immediately given Holy Communion, and they've never known a time when they weren't receiving Holy Communion. Okay? Can I ask a quick question about that? Yes. Um, just
1: logistically speaking, in the church, you can't give a baby Communion, so do so you have to Say like as soon as they can take solid food, they'll, start ta- they'll start taking it. No, they
0: do take it. They get a drop a, a drop of the blood of Christ mixed with the body of Christ in their mouth. It's okay. just a drop, but yeah. they do. All right. And they have little spoons and yeah. 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 Were your sets, that young? Uh, yeah. And and they were given uh, communion. well, Becca was a little bit older because she came to us at eighteen months. But um, but but she was pretty young, but she bit me actually, um, because, but Sarah didn't. But what I did was, um, you know, wash my hands with that 99.9% stuff and literally just dip my finger into the blood of Christ and placed it in their mouth. And that's how they received the, the blood of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. And in the beginning, they received j- just the blood of Christ usually. And then when they got a little bit older, they started receiving the body and blood of Christ but they've never known a time when they didn't. So you have some that do that. You have some that follow the Roman Catholic model, and this was the basic model followed at Holy Trinity before I came. You're baptized. Then there's a First Holy Communion class, and you receive First Holy Communion. And then you're confirmed at about 12, 13, or 14. Okay? So you have some that that do do that. Um... Uh, And then, um, so anyway, so we, we, you know, kind of both things are allowed in Anglicanism. You also have a third one, which is that some prayer book Anglicans will follow the model of maintaining the order and not following the Roman uh, compromise. You're baptized, right? Then around 12, 13, and 14, you're confirmed, and then you receive Holy Communion. Okay. So <laughs> that's why I say it's a bit schizophrenic because all three practices are, are done. I sometimes get annoyed when going to other churches and you see this less now, starting to change, but even a few years ago you, you still saw it quite a bit, where my girls will go up to receive and at another church and the priest will give them a blessing. Even though they're, you know, clearly you know, don't stick your tongue out at me. <laughs> right and uh, um, or have their hands out to receive and you know, but they're fine. So we are a bit schizophrenic on that, but there's a history. There's a reason we're schizophrenic, <laughs> because of our history uh, uh, in in this.
1: So you do and we do here now all at once. So when Connie was baptized a few weeks ago, she was also christened, so she does not need to be.
0: She doesn't. However, here's where I'm under the authority of the bishop. The bishop would argue that, um, yeah, I would argue she's done, right? Um, But he would argue that there's still a a special connection with the bishop. Um, And I would say, yeah, through chrismation. (laughs) And he would say, no, through the laying on of hands. So what I have done, because we disagree on this, but he is the bishop... Um, by Palina. Um, uh, but because he is the bishop. What I have said is that, you know, look, um, some sacraments are unrepeatable. You can't be baptized twice, right? Um, some sacraments are, you can't be ordained twice, right? I can't be re priested. I'm already a priest. But I can receive Holy Communion every day right? I can go to confession regularly, right? So some sacraments are repeatable, some sacraments aren't. So what I tend to do is to see the confirmation as a stirring up of the Holy Spirit within, in this example, Connie. So the bishop will still want her presented, although I would like to argue that it's unnecessary. But as he says, he's the bishop. So, uh, so she will be presented. Um, but I would see it as a stirring up of what's already in her. Of what's already in her. And there is some scriptural evidence for that. Now, I would say if the church got together and said, you know, this might be, let's return to the threefold rite. Right, baptized, chrismate, them communion right from the beginning. Whether they're 36, like in her case, or whether they are, you know one month old, okay? Let's return to that right? but let's still have that connection with the bishop at confirmation, and it can be really any age that someone feels that they're ready to make a mature commitment, right? And let's see it as a stirring up through the laying on of hands of the spirit that's already given. I wouldn't be opposed to to that. I even am not opposed, as long as we make it very clear that we're not re-baptizing, you know we have renewal of marriage vows i think it would be cool to go down to a river seriously because the the power symbolically in this case not as a sign but as a symbol the power of going into the water and coming out and just saying you know what i had wandered away from the lord for a while you know and but you know i want to be kind of renew my baptismal vows and then to have that moment i think it would be awesome i do something to along those lines at the easter vigil every year where we bless the waters in the baptismal font, and then I have everyone come forward to be blessed with those waters. And we talk about kind of the washing away, symbolically, of the ashes that we received on Ash Wednesday, you know, and that kind of thing. and. And and then also it's it's symbolic too of people who have committed grievous sins like not coming to the annual meeting or something, so you you know those, you know those people, uh, you, you know and then we get big water comes out you know, hot hot water too, but uh, uh, um, but yeah you know um, uh, you know I, so I think that you know it's not that the Protestant concept of symbolism is unimportant. Symbolism is incredible, right? The sign of matrimony is, is not the ring, right? The, the ring is a symbol. But even a symbol carries incredible power. I've used this example, too, on before in that I have said, um, uh, if Christine and I get into a fight, and wh- which is more like stabbing? If I say, ah, I can't stand you, I'm sick of this marriage. Or if I take off my ring and just throw it down on the table. Bing, 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 bing. Which one is more stabbing? Uh-oh. Yeah, That one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's why it's more stabbing. Because <laughs> I will be stabbed. Right, absolutely. And that's not even a sign, it's a symbol. You, you, you know, of the marriage. So it's not that the Protestant concept of symbol is unimportant. There is great power in that. Um, it's that we believe in something even more, and that are the signs, the sacraments. You know, but um, but yeah, no, I think that um, um, I still think that uh, there there can be a stirring up of the of of the spirit through the laying on of hands. Uh, Sandra, then Bob. Well, yeah, but that came as a justification after the fact that when it was separated from baptism. And then, so that was kind of the theological justification. And I do think there's something to that. I mean, you know, having a moment where people can say, you know what? Yes, I was brought up in it, and but I, I want to give some type of public witness to the fact that I accept this. You know, and, um, you know, there's something powerful to that, I believe. But uh, but originally, confirmation was the sealing of the Spirit, and it happened immediately. Bob, and then uh, Isaac?
1: If um, one can be confirmed twice, uh, why is it that when you go from, uh, uh, when you enter the, when I entered the Episcopal Church, I wasn't confirmed. I was received. Yeah. Um, why couldn't I have been confirmed on the argument that that would just be another stirring up?
0: Of yeah, the I don't know, and, and, and this is tough, and, and the reason this is tough is because I don't like to admit when uh, that something I don't have fully worked out in my head, <laughs> theologically. But I don't know that it's so much a second confirmation as it's a stirring up of what you have already received. Um. And so I would say that in that sense, when you were received through the laying on of hands, that is what happened, you know, too. That's why I like for chrismation still to be used when people are received and the laying on of hands. But a lot of bishops will actually just hold your hand, kind of like we're in fellowship now. That this In the ancient world, receiving right hands was a sign of fellowship. Now we just think it's like, hey, how you doing, you know? You know, all that stuff. Um, so, but it was actually assigned the right hand of fellowship, as the Bible says, right? Um, but I would have no problem with saying, look, yes, you've already received the initial confirmation, whether you were Eastern Orthodox, like when um, uh, uh, Linda McGillicuddy, who was raised in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, was, came into this communion, um she was not confirmed she was received um and uh but if someone comes from protestantism they're confirmed but i i would still say that there's no problem with you receiving the laying on of hands and even being chrismated chrismation is used in the eastern church if you fell into apostasy and came back you know to you know kind of stir up that which was already given the first time and that's how i would probably see it you know, theologically. But I actually think you should have not been confirmed, but received through chrism and the laying on of hands as well, for a stirring up. Like the second Pentecost. Yeah, in in a in a sense, or a stirring up of it anyway. Well didn't they have like that what they call quote second Pentecost when they mm-hmm. all got together somewhere else and it happened again? Yeah, well there's there's two other instances uh with, with the spirit falling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Isaac? So, what we're looking for is something like a bar mitzvah, Yeah, right.
1: But not to be confused with confirmation.
0: Yeah, now, there's many in Anglicanism, where, like I said, schizophrenic on this, who would say that I'm wrong. But I would say, if you follow the principle of the English Reformation, which is to return our church to the faith and order of the undivided church under the authority of Scripture... I would say then, based on that argument, that what we should do is return to the threefold rite of Christian initiation—one uh, rite, but three distinct parts uh, of Christian initiation: baptism, chrismation, communion—and that should be right from the get-go, it, whether one is coming in as a baby or as an adult. And that, um, but that that doesn't mean that there cannot be. Um, a stirring up of that when the bishop comes through the laying on of hands and chrismation and preparation and you know and that and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like a renewal of baptismal vows and a renewal of marriage vows. You're not getting people say, "Oh, we got married again." Well, only if you were divorced in between from each other. You're not getting married again. Yeah, right. Yeah, there you go. You're not getting married again. But yet there is something to renewing that, those vows, isn't there? You, you know, and so it'd be kind of along those lines. Mm-hmm. Karen and then Praveen? Um, in this prayer book, it says something about the idea that maybe the bishop is ordaining laity. The yeah, and I've always liked that idea, too, that in a sense, a laity through confirmation and the laying out of hands are in the apostolic succession, you know, and I think that's kind of a cool, cool thing. But the problem is instead of kind of sitting down and kind of working this out, which I think is doable, people are just kind of stuck in their trenches over which model they like, you know. and uh, But yeah, I think that is like, that's kind of a neat idea. Now, I think that's true too through Charismation, but, I, but that's not something to just be discarded. I, you know, I, I like that idea as well. And, you know, um, and that's important. So. That would be similar to like a bishop would like, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. Every, every person ought to have at least one point, that connection. With that connection with the bishop through the laying out of hands, yeah. You know, whether it be that he's actually confirming or stirring up, but that, in a sense, through that connection with the bishop, you, you know. Praveen? Going back to an example you've
1: used in the past, yeah, when Father Pickford, um came to this church and he was ordained as a priest, uh, even though he was a uh, minister before that, yeah. But when Father Terence came, we received. He was, you know, his orders his were orders received. Were valid. Yeah. Um, so we recognized Father Terence's orders. We recognized his. Yeah, but we didn't recognize Father Bigford's orders. He had to go through this whole process yeah. all over again.
0: Probably but a little why too. We make yeah. A
1: distinction with Father Bigford having to go through ordination again, but we accept Father Bigford's baptism. Why didn't we have him go through the whole baptism process again?
0: Yeah, good, good, good question. First of all, the way you articulated it is probably a little too strong in terminology for Anglicanism. We wouldn't say that uh, Michael Bickford's uh, Protestant orders, we don't make a judgment on them. It's not a, we, we don't get into validity or invalidity. What we say is, look, we only know what we know. So we're not saying that you weren't a minister of the gospel or that you weren't ordained, set apart in some way. You don't have to renounce that or anything like that. But you have not received through Episcopal orders, Episcopal meaning bishop, the laying on of hands, to be a priest. So you have to do to do that. So we would say that it's a matter of uh, bestowing that marked, assured moment uh, on him. Um, however, with baptism, baptism is valid, though it was the norm in the early church that it would be the bishop, and then subsequently in the absence of bishop, the the priest, and even deacons, and the argument could be made that a lay person who is baptized can baptize. Now, we would say that the practice should only be in an emergency. Um, They would argue that the entire Protestant Reformation was an emergency (laughs) because of the medieval abuses of the Roman church. Um, And so we have always recognized, and that goes back to the earliest days of the church, baptism if it's done by another Christian. So we might say it's irregular, but it's valid. It's irregular, but it's valid.
1: I'm still having this problem, though, with, you know, we say that we, we know what we know and therefore, you know, you haven't received holy orders through the placing of hands by the bishop. Hmm. Uh, so why don't we use that same argument saying we know what we know, uh, you know, you haven't been chrismated, you haven't. They would
0: they would have to be chrismated or confirmed. Well, how do we know? Father Bickford was. he Because they, they don't chrismate, that's so. number one. But their confirmation is not recognized in... Well, I don't want to say not recognized. But we do the same thing as we do with the ordination. Father Terence and Linda, his wife, were not confirmed. They were received because they were recognized as having already received that. But when Father Bickford became an Anglican... He was confirmed.
1: But he wasn't rebaptized.
0: No, because baptism has always been recognized in the church as, as able to be done by other Christians. So you can't rebaptize someone who's already baptized, even if it's done irregularly.
1: So when Connie came into this church and was baptized, mm-hmm. is that because we didn't recognize her baptism?
0: She if was she never. Was,
1: if she was baptized, she was
0: never baptized.
1: What if she was baptized in the Mormon church?
0: That's not recognized by Christians. Mormonism is seen as another religion because they don't believe in the Trinity.
1: So when I was confirmed, why was I not asked where I was baptized?
0: When you were confirmed here?
1: At at St. Mark's. No, you were actually baptized at St. Mark's. Right, but wouldn't you think that when anyone is confirmed, they would... Be required to make a declaration that
0: oh they have to yeah I
1: have been baptized and here is where I've been baptized it was a valid baptism
0: yes it it has to be with water in the name of the Father in fact in some places where people could not produce the document I had them either give me their word or sign something I testified that I have been baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit yeah so I should have been asked. If it wasn't, it should have been. Yeah, amen. And so I would say that is a stirring up of what you received, and that's awesome, you know? And it's certainly sacramental, you know? And, and so, um, so, yeah, that, and, that's, and that's neat. That's neat. It just gets, it gets tricky when you're confirmed or ordained by someone who's renounced basics of the faith and yet still has an anointing. You know, and I, I actually would prefer doing, but this gets very, it's very politically incorrect. But what I would like to do is what they call conditional ordinations, confirmations, baptisms. And my mother, for example, she, when she converted uh, as an adult to Roman Catholicism, there was no proof that she had been baptized as a Christian in the Methodist Church. There was no proof of the records. And um, and uh, so... What the Roman church did was they baptized her and they said, um, uh, Ernestine, if you are not already baptized, we baptize you in the name of the Father. And of the." And that is called conditional baptism. There's also um, what's called conditional ordination. If someone comes from a group where they claim apostolic succession but we're not really sure about the validity of the orders... They will be conditionally ordained. So the bishop will say, um, let's say Bob came to us from one of the old Catholic churches, and it wasn't the Polish National Catholic Church, so we weren't sure about their orders. And Bob came, the bishop would lay hands and say, Bob, if you are not already ordained, receive the Holy Spirit for the office and work. And that is considered conditional. I actually would feel much more comfortable with conditional stuff, um, but, you know, when it comes to, well, I was confirmed by a valid bishop, that's true, he happens, and I, I can't get into Bishop's brain, I don't know if he would be this far, but, you know, let's say for other people, you know, they happen to uh, not believe in the Trinity, or the Incarnation, or the Atonement, or the Bible is the Word of God, and I, I would like that person to be conditionally confirmed, what do we do? Uh, if a uh, let's say someone moves here, say Isaac moves here from Utah, right, and says, "Ah, yeah, I'd like to join Anic. I'd like to start a church plant under this diocese, and and you know, uh, and be be a priest, and uh, you know, um, and come to Acton and go to town. Oh, that's great." Uh, who are, who? Now, you're in the Episcopal Church. Oh, so you were ordained by a bishop. Right, okay. Well, even though that bishop may be in sin, as far as what they believe, still valid, right? Yeah, yep. And so, what, okay, so let me see your orders. What was that bishop's name? Uh, bishop Jane Dixon. So now, for many of us, there's, there's a question about whether or not he's ordained. Um, and I can understand, for some people, it's going to be very offensive if we ordain him. And for other people, it's a matter of certainty. And so there is that issue. I would at least like to see conditional ordination, because he's coming into a province that does not have women bishops. But that's, you know, throw that in in a meeting, and you're going to... at an ecumenical meeting, you know... Um, So confirmation, chrismation. Now we're going to look at the scriptures. If you have a Bible, please take it out. If not, you might find them in the pews. And turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, verse 1. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, verse 1. Yeah, there's one here, Bob, right here. Right here. I know it's going to be a good one for a row. Oh, okay. Yes. You need one? Yeah, 19 no, I got one. one. Okay, Acts of the Apostles 19.1. Everyone there? Or I should say anyone not there? Okay. While well, Apollos was at Corinth, so... The indication here is that Apollos, Apollos, as we know from other places in the Acts of the Apostles, was a spirit-filled, powerful preacher and teacher, but he misunderstood baptism and had to be corrected on that. He confused the baptism of John with Christian baptism, and that had to be corrected. Okay, It's interesting, though, that you can be in Christ, and be in the Spirit, and, you know, of course, be misunderstand some things. But anyway, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. First thing to note, these are disciples. Okay, these are people that claim to be followers of Christ and under the authority of Christ. Disciples, discipline. They're in the Christian discipline. Okay, that's important. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now note that he assumes that if they're disciples, that they are what? Nope. He does. Well, yeah, he's growing to, but we haven't gotten there yet. No, he doesn't assume that they've received it. That's the, that's, look at it closely. That's the point. He assumes if they're disciples that they're believers. He doesn't assume that because they're disciples and believers that they have received the Holy Spirit. We're going to find out that he doesn't assume. Well, we'll we'll get to that. Okay? So, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So he assumes if they're disciples that they're believers. But what he doesn't assume is that they've received the Holy Spirit, not in the apostolic way. Okay, there's many givings of the Holy Spirit. He's talking here about what the, the apostolic gift of the Spirit. This is very problematic to a lot of evangelical churches. Why? Because you receive the Holy Spirit when you accept Christ. When you believe. That's the moment you receive the Holy Spirit, right? Um, And so they would say, that's a moment when you become a Christian. You have accepted Christ. You are a disciple and a believer. You have received the Spirit. Paul doesn't make that assumption. When I pointed this out in a couple of other passages we're going to look at today to Christine's former pastor down in Virginia, he said, well, you can't make doctrine based on the Acts of the Apostles because the church was in its developing stages. Is it the word of God? Okay, that, That's true, that they, he said that. Okay, um, So, he assumes, if they're disciples, that they're believers. What he doesn't assume is that they've received the Holy Spirit, at least in that particular way. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not, not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? So note this. He assumes if they're disciples, that they're believers. He also assumes that they're baptized if they're disciples. The one thing he doesn't assume is that they've received that particular apostolic gift of the Spirit. But he's perplexed. He doesn't understand how they could be baptized and not know about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Christian baptism is, by water in the Spirit, entrance into the life of Christ. And you are baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So how can they be disciples and believers and be baptized and not even know about the Holy Spirit? The only thing he doesn't assume is that they have received the Holy Spirit in that particular way. Okay. No, we've never even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. This is so important for Christians to understand and ponder. Most Christians have no idea that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. They're related, but they're different. John's baptism is a foreshadowing of Christian baptism. It's a type of the baptism to come. Yes, it's with water, and yes, it's symbolic of the washing away of sins, but Christian baptism is by water and the Spirit. Okay, by water and the Spirit. John's baptism is not Christian baptism, and a lot of people don't understand that, okay? So they said, into John's baptism, and Paul said, oh, well, okay, well, then you've already received baptism. No, that's not what he says. He says, and Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, so he was on the right track, right? Because it's a foreshadowing, it's a prophecy of what will be fulfilled in Christ. Telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is meaning they received Christian baptism. So Christian baptism is different from John's baptism. John's baptism was symbolic of the washing away of sin and repentance to prepare for receiving the Messiah. Christian's baptism is actually receiving the Messiah. Okay, In a sense, the theology of of the Southern Baptists is John's baptism. It's symbolic of having turned around and that you've been washed. But there's a difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism. So on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means in Christian baptism. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. So note that they are baptized in Christian baptism, baptism in the name of Jesus, because they had only received John's baptism. So they had to be baptized. If they're believers, you have to be baptized. But when do they receive the Spirit? When the Apostle lays his hands on them. Okay. Now we're going to see it even more pronounced. Turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. Now, this is Philip the deacon. Very important to note this because he's not an apostle. Therefore, he's about to baptize them, but what's the one thing he's not going to do? Confirm them. He calls for the apostles to come down to confirm them because he's a deacon. This is Philip the Evangelist, whose feast day is October 11th, by the way. But when they, those to whom Philip the deacon was preaching, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon, now this is Simon the magician, who had rege- who was uh, playing around with the magic, black magic arts, okay? Uh, Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed, because he knew, wow, these are real, right? Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, so these people had received the word of God, they were baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Do you see why that poor pastor was like, Ugh, we can't use the Acts of the Apostles for a doctrine? Because this goes very much against that doctrine.
1: But it also says there's no problem necessarily with the separation of those two
0: events. Well, we'll get into, we'll, we'll get into that. But they immediately come down. Right. And so in the patristic church, they were all done. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, but they come down as soon as they hear it. They're on their they're on their way. Okay, um, uh, uh, let's see where were we? Heard Samaria had received the word of God. They sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it, I prefer he. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they were believers. They had received the word of God. They were even baptized into Christ, but they had not yet received confirmation that laying on of hands by the apostles. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, now, so evident was the fact that it was through the laying on of hands that they received the Holy Spirit that we see this next verse. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, how? Through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, the attempt to buy an office of the church to this day is known as simony. Because of this. So if Bob said, if I said, you know, Bob, sorry, but the, the bishop has turned it down. He's not. Oh, okay. What if I give you $10,000? Um, Tell the bishop that. Okay, And then the bishop says, suddenly I had an awakening. And Bob is, we're going to ordain him on the 17th. Which, by the way, this is all fictitious. It took a lot more than $10,000. Um, um. a very high grade. <laughs> that's right, that's right. A single malt, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, that would be called simony the attempt or actually doing it to buy an office of the church. Okay? How do you spell that? Just with a Y or EY? Just a Y. Just a Y? Yeah. Y. Okay. How do you spell that? Y. Okay. Um, uh, let me see. What verse were we? Oh, give me also this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor a lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, etc., um, etc., so it's also not true that you know everyone in the church has the same ministry or is the same type of dispenser of grace. I've had people say, well, we're all priests, or we're all apostles, or we're all... Well, you know, it's very clear that all the apostles were disciples, but not all the disciples were apostles. When Judas hangs himself, right... That, um, they went, and from among the disciples, they chose another to become an apostle. So all apostles are disciples, not all disciples are apostles. Is everyone with me on that? Does that make sense? Okay. Did you just, you just call me pastor? Is that what you no, 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 pastor? said? Pastor? Oh, I think you said pastor. Was I, a, I, I, I don't mind that. being called pastor, by the way. I'm just wondering if that's what you did. Okay, I say you're like pastor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. I wasn't that low church. Right. Uh, <laughs> if this same
1: passage, I mean, besides the obvious that Simon's trying to do something wrong here, yeah, be evidence for the a bishop's ability to discern who should be ordained because Peter knows right
0: away. You know, well. Yeah, and, and, and later on, too, um, the warning is given to bishops to lay hands suddenly on no man, that you're not, you, you know, you're supposed to be discerning about whom you ordain. So, yes. Yeah. And still, technically, in our system to this day, bishops have that authority. So, for example, Bob goes through the whole process, right, and locally comes to me as his rector and archdeacon, and I say, okay. Uh, and then he meets with the ordained ministry committee in the local parish, which represents the parish council, and they say, okay. And then he goes on and somehow makes it through the psychological exams. I don't know how, but let's say he does. Okay. Uh, And, you know, it gets okay. And then he goes to the Dove weekend, which is the diocesan level, right, and makes it through, and they say, okay. The bishop still can say, no. Or vice versa. I can say no, the Dove Committee can say no, we can all say no, and the bishop can still say yes. Um, the Every level is uh, advisory. The bishop ultimately has the right to ordain and not ordain whom he wants. There is one exception, but we'll get into that right now. But yeah, Um Okay, so, um, so yeah, so interesting. This gift of the Spirit is given here, we see, through the laying on of hands. If we look, however, at Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, go back to, we're going backwards in time here, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, Um at verse 37. Now, when they, those to whom the apostles were preaching, heard this, that is, the gospel, the good news of life and salvation in Jesus Christ, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So, what question are they asking? They have heard the gospel spoken by the Spirit through the apostles, and they're saying, what must we do? What are they really asking here? What's the next step? What's the next step? But what must we do what? To be, saved. to be saved, right. I mean, we've heard this. We're cut to the heart. We're believers. I mean, we're cut to the heart. That means the very core of the person. What must we do? And Peter says, nothing. If you're cut to the heart and have received the word in your heart, that's it. That's not what he says, okay? Very hard, by the way, for some Christian denominations to to realize this. okay Peter doesn't say that. what what does he say? Um, now that when they, those to whom the apostles were preaching, heard this, the good news of life and salvation in Jesus Christ, the gospel, they were cut to the heart, that is to the very depths of their being, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? that is what response must we give to the gospel? What must we do to be saved? And Peter said to them, Repent, that is literally turn around 180 degree, degrees. Stop heading towards the world and head towards the word. Stop heading towards death and head towards life. Stop heading towards darkness and head towards light. Repent and be baptized. That's the response. Okay. Not, no, it's all good. You know, like Paul. Well, I had this encounter with the living Lord. I, you know, uh, he was converted, and yet he had to be baptized, okay? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. That's the marked moment of forgiveness of sins, okay? And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Now, note here, who's present? All the apostles. Okay? For the promise, that's covenant language, very important here. For the promise, because he's speaking to Jews here, they understand that language. That's covenant language. That's big time for them. For the covenant, he is saying, is to you and to your children and to all that are far off. So not just for you, but actually for your children and for all the world, the Gentiles. That was also big news for them to hear. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. He doesn't say you're already saved. He's saying you need to be saved from this world. What's this perverse generation or crooked generation that he's talking about? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't mean like if they lived in the 60s, hey, be saved from this perverse generation, man. No, the the perverse generation is Adam's generation. The human life apart from salvation in Jesus. Okay? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, whose word? The word of Peter. That is, those who received the apostolic word were baptized. Baptized. Were baptized. And there were added that day, added to what? The the yeah, to the church, to the covenant, to right, to the apostles. Well, not to the office of the apostles, but to, to fellowship with them. And there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, you don't come to an individual faith in Jesus. You receive the faith of the family, the faith of the covenant personally within your heart. And fellowship, you're in relationship with the apostles. To this day, we believe that we are in fellowship with the apostles through the successors of the apostles, the office of bishop. To the breaking of the bread, which for Luke, who's writing the Acts of the Apostles, is a reference to what? Holy Communion. And the prayers. Notice here it's the prayers in the Greek. It's the prayers. These are specific liturgical prayers. It's not like into praying. That's not what the Greek says. It's to the prayers. These are specific liturgical prayers. Acts two, thirty-seven, and following is very important for our ecclesiology, our understanding of the church and its sacramental and its sacramental life. But note there that there are apostles present. So unlike when Paul comes, he's saying, hey, I don't know that you were baptized by an apostle when he's in Ephesus. So did you receive the Holy Spirit? right? In, in Samaria, Philip the deacon goes down and baptized. So the apostles immediately come down, Peter and, and John, or James, Peter and John, come down so they can have the Holy Spirit. Here, there's no reference to that. Why? Because Peter and all the apostles are there. They are present. Now, does this mean that the Holy Spirit is only given in confirmation or chrismation? No. You know, if the Holy Spirit was at work, to use Connie as an example, was at work long before she was baptized, chrismated, it's the Holy Spirit that leads us. The waters of baptism would have been ordinary waters if it wasn't for the Spirit of God descending upon them through the prayers, right? It would have been ordinary waters. It was the Then it was the Spirit who chrismated her, and it was the Spirit that made the body and blood of Christ the body and blood of Christ that day for her to be nourished in that new life, right? So all very, very important. Uh, in fact, this whole teaching and confirmation, maybe we should make this a separate um, disc for people to listen to. Not that it should be separated from the whole incarnational theology thing, but... It, you could, yeah, you got to do it in doses. Okay. All right, now let's look at John 3, 1 to 6. John 3, 1 to 6. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? He was afraid. He was afraid. By night and said to him, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." So there was something already at work in Nicodemus's heart. Others had seen the same signs, but they had hardened their heart against Jesus and sought to have him killed. Nicodemus saw these signs, and because he didn't harden his heart, he knew that there that there was some type of anointing upon God. But he's still afraid. And so he comes at night. Jesus answered him, Truly, I say to you, truly, truly. So it must be true because he said it twice. It's like when people say honestly. Unless you say that, were you going to be dishonest in what you told me? Honestly. Honestly, (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Verily? That's the King James. Verily, verily. Verily, verily, through the snow and Christmas bells are ringing. Okay. Uh, Oh, that's merrily, merrily. Never mind. Okay. Uh, Yeah, truly, truly, or as the true Bible of the King James says Verily, verily, um, I say to you, unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, we have to be transferred, uh, as, as Colossians says. We have to be transferred from one kingdom to the other. We can't just get from the world to the kingdom of God. As they say in Maine, can't get there. From here, right, right, you can't do that because we are finite creatures, right? And the kingdom is one with the king, and the king—a lot of Elvis things I want to say, but I won't. The king, right, is infinite, right? And so we must be transferred. We must go from one kingdom to the another. We're born into the first kingdom, which is the world, the kingdom of darkness, but then we must be born anew into the kingdom of God. Okay. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, <laughs> a lot of Christians today interpreting this passage um, completely... Uh, um, Separated from how it was understood in the patristic writings, however, um, will say that when Jesus says you must be born water of water and the Spirit, that the water means birth uh, from your mom, and then the Spirit means and you know. And Nicodemus actually asked that question, like so: Being born again, do you have to go back into? Jesus is like, no, okay. Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered. <laughs> he answers a lot nicer than I would have. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, so here he's answering what true what it truly means to be born anew. One must be born of water and the Spirit. Okay, um, the early church fathers tell us that this is a reference. To be being baptized and receiving then the Holy Spirit of God. It's not enough to just be baptized. If you are baptized but you don't believe, right? Unless you're covered in the covenant as a child, if you don't believe, yes, you're baptized, but you have by your non-belief fallen into apostasy. You have rejected that which has been given you. Right? And unless you repent from that. Right, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. It's not like baptism is a ticket to ride, but it's not symbolic either, right? But if one is baptized, then um, you know I, I use this example, although I can never remember the cor- the correct word. It's it's a bellow. Bellows. B e l l o w s. So have you ever seen? Um, a fire that looks dead, I mean completely dead, no embers burning at all. And you take the bellows and you go like this. And what what can happen? (laughs) And it starts going. Well, think of the bellows as the Holy Spirit. It's not that the person is not baptized, right? It seems that it's dead, but they are there, right? Uh, and with a little help, with a little kindling thrown on top, w- remember the word for spirit is the same as what? Breath, right? So the spirit coming, those, those, those even unseen, under the surface embers, can become a roaring fire, okay? Um, and that's a good analogy here. But all the church fathers say that water here is baptism, and the spirit is the anointing with the spirit, Right. Well yeah, and, and, and uh, yeah, and in a sense Yeah, and in a sense God God creates Adam, but until the spirit is breathed into him, he's a lifeless being, right? Yeah. And think of the church as is the is the second Adam in Christ, right? But Jesus says, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit falls upon you. Why? Because even though the church is the body of Christ, in a sense, it's a lifeless being until the Spirit falls upon the church. You know? And so, yeah, that's an important way of looking at it. Bob?
1: The Greek for uh, anew or again is anopen, which is the same yeah, word for from above.
0: Yeah, from above. So
1: unless you are born from above, mm-hmm. you...
0: No, no life in you. But what what's strange? That's a very, uh, very helpful. But what's strange is that there are some churches today that think that when Jesus said, "Unless you're born by water and the Spirit," that the water does not refer to baptism. They think it refers to the womb. So basically, Jesus was saying, "Well, to be saved, first you have to be literally born, and then you have to receive the Spirit." Well, the early church fathers never said that that's what Jesus was saying. You know, well, I mean, to be saved, you have to first exist in the womb. Well, yeah, we, we know that, right? So, was it Praveen? Yeah, Someone I'm, had their hand I'm up. I'm just
1: having a little bit of an issue here with, you know, so couldn't you interpret this passage as saying that even Jesus said, it's not just enough to follow me mm-hmm. to be saved? you have to be baptized. Oh, yes. And if that's the case, then Jesus is not, it's not enough to just have Jesus.
0: Well, it is, because baptism is the way we enter into Jesus. Remember, where was woman created from Adam? From the side, right? From the side. What do we see, according to the fathers, uh, that the church is created from Jesus' side, as his bride. Because what flows out of his side when they stab him with the spear? Blood and water. And the early church fathers tell us that this is baptism and the Eucharist. And so that ultimately, and it's no accident that, that it was blood and water, that, that basically the bride of Christ is being created from the side of the new Adam. And that baptism and Eucharist is what brings us into Christ. So it's not baptism in itself that saves in addition to Christ. It's that baptism is, and the Eucharist is, a participation in Christ. That these are the vehicles incarnationally through which we enter into him. So it is that Christ is enough. It's that these these are the vehicles through which we enter into Christ. And I will send you the spirit, or i send you the comfort of pain. Does this fit in somewhere to our discussion? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a reference uh, to the actual initial um, bathing of the church in the Spirit of God. That, that's the, it's a reference to Pentecost, where, again, the church, though the body of Christ, is in one sense a lifeless being because it had not been imbued yet with the Spirit of God, the breath of God. And so the the fire of heaven, the breath of God, the Spirit of God, falls upon the church at Pentecost, and then the church goes out as a living being into all the world to be a new Adam, a new humanity. And so that's the reference there. That's the reference. Isaac? Right.
1: And we die to the flesh. Right. And must be reborn in the Spirit. Right. So it's not a question of just believing in Jesus, but dying to the flesh in Jesus and being
0: reborn in the Spirit in Jesus. Right. And the Spirit is given to us incarnationally. I mean, it's through the created order, not in opposition to the created order. And so that's right. What, what Jesus is saying there, and again misunderstood in many ways, that water is the womb and that must be denied because what's born of the world is of the world and what's of the spirit, they think it means just spiritual. But what they're doing is they're separating it from both the incarnation and the creation of God himself in the beginning. That God conveys these things through the created order, not in opposition to the created order. Um, And so, you know, even, you know, the Spirit hovered over the waters of the old creation in the beginning. And then what do we see the Spirit doing at the baptism of Jesus? Hovering over the waters, right? Revealing them to be waters of a new creation in Christ, you know? And and it's not just a, a spiritual event. I mean, the water is present, the Trinity is present. Luke actually pushes it so far that it it almost becomes problematic because he says that uh the spirit appeared in bodily form as a dove it's almost as if the spirit was incarnated as a bird so I mean but he's trying to make the point that this isn't just a spiritual event as if like fantasy or
1: ooh,
0: right the holy ghost right this is actually through the created order that the spirit is, is coming upon the incarnate Lord. You know, it's not just a spiritual thing. It's spiritual, but not in the sense of, as in opposition to the physical. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now let's look at, um, and what I'm, what I'm going to do here is our last class, is I'm going to finish the other four at that one because I wouldn't be able to do them justice in in the 45 minutes that we'll have left when I get done with confirmation here. So we'll do absolution, anointing, ordination, and matrimony at the last class, which is next time. Um, But we'll continue here. Go to Titus. Titus 3, beginning at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, that is, we were apart from the wisdom of God revealed in his Son, Jesus, Disobedient, because even if we were able to walk for a time in what would be considered good, ultimately, as fallen human beings, our, our, we were inclined towards disobedience, rebellion, and evil. Okay. Led astray by our passions. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, Hated by men and hating one another. Sounds lovely, okay? Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, so not by our works, okay, but by mercy, but in virtue of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, regeneration being to be born anew, to be born again, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that we might be justified by his grace and become heirs in hope of eternal life, the saying is sure. Okay, Again, water, water, and the Spirit, water and the Spirit, um, and you know we would get into the water part, but we're doing confirmation, so we're looking in particular at the the Spirit. But we see baptism, anointing, baptism, anointing, okay, um, over and over and over again. Yeah. The,
1: the saying ashore refers
0: to the creeds. Yeah, that that follows. You mean? He was raised up. I didn't read it to go on, but is that the place where it says he was manifested in the spirit? I think he's referring to what you just said, isn't he? Oh, the saying is sure. Yeah. Which would be um, the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life. Yeah. I I like verse nine. But avoid stupid controversies. Not all controversy, but stupid ones. That would like that would like radically change churches if we just followed that one. <laughs> Avoid all stupid controversies. What would we talk about? Okay. All right. Um, all right. Uh, now let's look at Ephesians one thirteen. Ephesians one thirteen. we'll start at 12 because I like it this Bible. what's that?
1: This Bible exactly where we need to
0: go. wow so I can't get there. that was the Holy Spirit oh so you couldn't get there oh that was the devil yeah okay verse 12 verse 12 we who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. Amen. Amen. All right, good. Thank you, Susie. In him you also, in him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and who have believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is why it's really important, I think, that this get back with, with baptism. They need to get back together, right? All right. Um, and then look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that idea of being sealed in the Holy Spirit. And that's what we still talk about to this day. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, when Connie was baptized, I said, uh, um, Connie, um, you were sealed in baptism with Christ and marked as Christ's own forever. And I chrismated her with the oil consecrated by The bishop.